Those that are good manners at the court are as ridiculous in the country as the behavior of the country is most mockable at the court. William Shakespeare, As You Like It, Act 3, Scene 2. Welcome to the stack. Angelo Cotavia, who we're going to be discussing today, some of his work, but he is a uh, retired academic out of Boston University who is Italian-American, uh, born in Milan, came to America, served in the U.S. Navy, went to Rutgers, got his Ph.D. from Claremont Institute, and then had an interesting career starting in the Foreign Service in the State Department very briefly, and then moving into working in the legislative and executive branches. Mostly, interestingly to me, a lot of his executive branch experience was in managing the presidential transitions, I think, for President Reagan and then, and then Bush. So really seeing some of how government gets made and how people are chosen to serve in these areas, particularly in foreign policy and the intelligence community. He then went to and stayed, he was at the Hoover Institute, Stanford University for a while, and then spent most of his career in Boston University. He, one of the more prominent cases that he got involved with actually was advocating for Jonathan Pollard, the uh, convicted spy for for Israel. I think uh, so he was a, a national security agency analyst who was convicted partly for spying for Israel, but suspected of having tried to sell secrets to the Soviet Union and others. And could it be a sort of surprisingly for those on on the right advocated for him feeling that he had been rolled by the establishment, particularly because of the disproportionate punishment of life imprisonment compared to others that other cases that he was very, very familiar with. He has written a number of uh, academic, more academic books on the questions of regime and political philosophy and how different governments come together for in, in different political contexts. But today we're going to focus on a more popular book that came out within the last decade titled The Ruling Class, How They Corrupted America and What We Can Do About It. Sort of a short book and a short introduction. To He's been writing over the course of the last year on these themes about the uh, political dichotomies between sort of the, uh, again, like, yeah, the, the people that form the nucleus of government and, you know, more broadly than that, the um, pop culture and uh, media and everything uh, over and against the uh, rest of the country. So that's that's where we are. Uh, Josh, what do you what do you think? I'm, I'm interested in uh, Cotevilla's provenance, actually, because one thing that you notice in his, well, actually, I, I guess I'll ask you, what do you think his, um, how would you describe his political philosophy? Is he a realist, uh, a Machiavellian? Uh, he's he's as you said he's born in um, well you said Milan he's actually born in uh, Volgara which is between um, right well very close to to Milan but but not not too far in fact from Machiavelli's Florence there's something about Italians from that region what do you think about his um, political philosophy before we jump into the elite yeah I I think that we would be we'd be surprised if it wasn't shaped somewhat by where where he's from and and he actually had a few debates um although many of their political views would have been fairly similar but he did have debates with Antonin Scalia the uh, Supreme Court justice and he attributed uh, Cotevilla attributed some of their disagreements to the fact that um Scalia's 
family came from southern Italy. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, even he is uh, very aware of some of these strains of thoughts, uh, you know, and, and where he came from uh, consciously. And I, clear, obviously he's been a student of Machiavelli um, and in his foreign policy, sort of international relations thinking, I, he certainly is more in the realist camp. Uh, and that comes through in his uh, opposition to uh, sort of neoconservative foreign policy and the Iraq war and things like that. But yeah, there's there certainly is is something there. And I think that, you know, possibly his yeah, his being from Volgara rather than Milan itself, you know, may influence some of his uh, sympathies for more satellite and peripheral areas. I mean, Italy, we could spend it a whole episode talking about Italy and its politics and you know, especially the differences between the North and the South and everything like that. But yeah, there certainly is something there. Yeah, I, I do want to say just before we jump into the ruling class, a a great book for people to read is um, Burnham's The Machiavellians. I don't know if you've read that one, but um, you get the you, you, you get sort of a, an overview of, of uh, Machiavelli. You also get uh, Gaetano Mosca, and uh, Pareto, so you get the whole sort of um, Italian Italian tradition of, of Machiavellian thought in one book. So I'm just going to throw Burnham out there for those who haven't read him. Okay, so on to the ruling class. Now, the ruling class is what can we say about that? It's it it, it is a well the the subtitle of the book is. Um, how they ruined America, right? Something like that. Yeah, how they corrupted America they... and and what we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a short book. It's like 150 pages or whatever, and it, it's it's written al- almost in like a quaint age. So 10 years ago or 12, I guess you know when the primary concerns were much more financial. So it, it comes out of the global financial crisis and. The you know Tea Party movement and some of that stuff, where there had been a very massive bailout of the financial industry of Wall Street following the Bear Stearns blow up and sale to J.P. Morgan, and then the Lehman Brothers crash at the at the end of 2008, and the decision by the Bush administration, then continued on by Obama to coordinated with the central bank to basically just just write off all of this and prop up the system. And I think that you know one of the linchpins of his argument is that there are these massive critical decisions that are made without any sort of input from uh, the democratic process, and then also very much with the mindset that those making them, meaning those in government in coordination with kind of the controllers of capital and, and the financial system, are, are making this these decisions explicitly because they think that other people, kind of the common people, do not understand the system. And so we need to write off all of these mortgage-backed securities, everything like that, and and prop up the uh, the investment banks. And we're going to do it with taxpayer money and we're not going to seek input because we we know better than everybody else. And there was a major reaction to that in the Tea Party movement and everything. And plenty can be said about how much of that was legitimate, how much of that was sort of taken over cynically by parts of the Republican Party and everything. But there certainly was a reaction and an awareness that the American political system had evolved to a point where there was a massive alienation between the ruling class. And that's that's a bipartisan. The ruling class is bipartisan. It's, it's Democrat and Republican. 
Republican. You know, in, in his mental model, the Democrats are a senior partner in this. But again, it was the Bush administration doing a lot of it and, and then the Obamas. So it was there was not really that much of a difference between between the two of them. His his prescriptions are certainly more sympathetic with, I'd say, a Republican mindset as far as tax policy and everything. But he's he's very clear that it, within Washington, within kind of um, corporate power and everything like that, this is really a bipartisan issue. Yeah. So if we if we sort of go back to the beginning, who who are they? Who are the ruling class? So well, actually, uh, uh, let me say that what he what he does is he splits the classes in America into only two: the ruling class and and the country class. The country class coming from well, the English country class. He gets the term from there. So who are they? They're they're both uh, Democrat and Republican. If you consider yourself a Democrat, Democrat, then you are part of the ruling class and either either solidly, firmly part of the ruling class or an aspirant, right? So if you are part of like the one third of the country who is solidly Democrat, then that's that's how you might be described as either part of the ruling class or or an aspirant. And then where do they where do they come from? He he says that well he he traces them at least as far back as Wilson, but then in fact they have their they have their roots at least as far back as probably Massachusetts, the Bay Colony, and then, of course, you can keep going back and back. They're the people who would have been, or they would have been the um, the anti-polygamous movement or the, the, the prohibitionists. And then in, in Wilson's time, they are the Chautauqua class. Yeah, the Chautauqua, um, the Chautauqua seminars. I, I think that... Um... There's a, there's an interesting point here, and I, I've been reading uh, Neil Neil Postman's "Amusing Ourselves to Death," and I don't know if you've read that, but it's a uh, kind of a reactionary anti-television written in the 1980s, but uh, anti-television and pop culture thing, sort of how particularly the, though he he is opposed to these new new mediums, but it is he's focusing on epistemology and how it changes how people think. So if you look at kind of Greek philosophy and Socrates and Plato and how that came out of the uh, first era of writing things down and that changes how people go into discourse. And then basically until you have the radio and certainly television, discourse is very different. So, you know, uh, the idea that the Lincoln-Douglas debates where people would sit and speak for, you know, seven hours and people would be engaged and listening and that would make sense to them. And obviously now I can't pay any attention to anything longer than a, a tweet. So, and I'm relatively educated. So it's not basically everybody does it. But, but one of his points that is germane to this is before the telegraph came, everything was hyper-local. So, you know, news and everything. And I think that, yeah, you can talk about the Massachusetts Bay Colony and that there were, there was, there were, you know, that maybe you can trace the ruling class and some of its ideology there. But really, before you had that breakdown in distance, which started in the mid 19th century, but came in earnest with mass radio and everything, Around the time of Wilson, you you would have not you would have had many ruling classes and much more localism and everything. So you know the the gentry in the South would have been very different from the wasp aristocracy in the Northeast. Even that would have been different from anything that was going on in the Midwest or anything. You know, so 
you did not have a national ruling class. And those ruling classes, because they were closer to the concerns of people there, they had to work much more cooperatively with the country class or the lower classes within uh, the place that they are. So I think that that's an important distinction to make. And I think why we could point to more the time of Wilson as when this really comes it becomes congealed. And certainly by the time of FDR, when you have the World War II aided transition of decision making into, and this came up uh, during our discussion of the coronavirus, but basically giving professional managerial government by expert Right. Uh, the the brain that trust came out of that, that era, became... right. the brain trust, right? Yeah, and that yeah, and this mindset, kind of the Kennedy era mindset of the best and the brightest. You know, I I think that that in Kennedy and really when you had a that's probably when the Democrats became the senior partner in this, right? Where a center-left ideology of big government, the administrative state, government by the best and the brightest, and then for better or for worse, coming out of the civil rights movement, an identity of the center-left as morally superior. And that really undercut any sort of um, ability for uh, the country class to have much input on, on a level playing field because you then through mass media and everything basically have morally impugn a lot of the values of the country class. So I, I think that that's where we could go. You know, the, the Wilson time is interesting. And, you know, I think for an international relations uh, scholar like Cotevilla, he would focus on that particularly because of the uh, internationalism that came out of entry into World War One, which as a realist, like you would say, that's crazy to do. And then, you know, relevant to the global financial crisis and everything. That's when the uh, Federal Reserve was set up uh, with a lot of implications for our financial system. Yes. And I think that what I was trying to do is not trace a people, but an idea. That is mm. to say, progress- mm-hmm. progressivism is is the is one, at least one strain that has, you know, made it several hundred years now into the, the future. And what I mean is, you know, uh, tr- by tracing it back, the people have changed. And Cotevilla actually mentioned this, and this sort of tacks onto what you just said, which is that the managerial class has has changed as a result of getting rid of getting rid of um, the ser- service tests, right? You know, government. If you want to, mm-hmm. if if you want to go into government service, and I, th- if if memory serves, this is Nixon's administration is when this begins, gutting the uh, you know government service testing requirements. When uh, Cotevilla does at some point start talking about, you know, the failings of the of the ruling class, why it is that the ruling class of 1955, compare the ruling class of 1955 with the ruling class of 2020, one reason for their uh, failing is is that the, qual- I guess, the quality of bureaucrat or manager has significantly reduced by that. Let me, let me ask this question. How, how, uh, well, I'm not sure that we really made it clear who the ruling class is, but they are these, they're the the Democrats, 100% of the Democrats plus some percentage of, of Republicans. And I guess if you were a a Trump Republican, they're the Republicans that you would call rhinos, uh, the Mitt Romney 
types. Aspirant, aspirant um, Republicans, I guess, those who want to be close to power. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, I mean, that, yeah, that's interesting because there's been certainly a shift in that because during, I mean, Romney, yeah, uh, how to say it? I remember close to 20 years ago, a rhino was sort of anybody that fell on the left spectrum, certainly on social issues, but also on, could be on fiscal issues, you know, somebody who, you know, just is not a deficit hawk, sort of doesn't want to cut the size and scope of government. And, you know, that that is certainly a shift in the Trump era. And this is not not talking about his own political ideology, but what has kind of the people that support him are much less focused on on that sort of thing, you know, sort of like, oh, we need to lower taxes and lower government spending and everything. And so, you know, whether it's right, I mean, certainly, like, I think that the ruling class within that Republican group, and I think, you know, the Democrats have their own dialectic between people that are kind of there are some people that are outside of the ruling class in in that center left, but um, and certainly those on the far farther left. But in any case, you know there is an establishment, and you see it in you know especially in those those kind of Republican or so called conservative affiliated think tanks, right? That and their response even to the controversies around this election, uh, which is ongoing, um, you know, we still haven't kind of collected on our, our bet or anything on from the first episode, <laughs> but the... Um, it's never going to happen. But, they, you know, I think if you look, like, you know, the only people that are saying Trump should give up are, you know, if you look in their bio, they are working for National Review or, you know, the American Enterprise Institute. And the, these guys have never been very supportive of what was going on with Trump because they opposed him in his primary and, uh, you know, have not really ideologically seen eye to eye. But I think also they are, you know, they, they make more money as bomb throwers from the outside. And a lot of them became very prominent during the Clinton years and when they were, you know, sort of for eight years spending time kind of complaining about things that he was was doing and they, they just and then Obama certainly they were able to raise a lot more money and feel more influential and they, it's almost like you know they don't want to win and partly for financial reasons but I think also just kind of psychologically they've gotten to a point where they see their ideology as as junior and inferior to to the ruling class you know that there's been this this sort of an effect but yeah I think that that's that's the opposition within the Republican Party is what I'm saying. Yeah. No matter what you are called, what you are in name, Cotavia gives us some clues as to how you can identify the ruling class. So I'm going to enumerate some of those. Maybe the, the major one is closeness to government. How close are you to government? And what that means is mm -hmm. either you work for government or you are in some way receiving government's largesse. So you can be part of the ruling class if you are a bureaucrat, of course, but also if you are, I don't know, uh, working for an energy company and um, uh, paying a lobbyist for the Green New Deal or something like that, right? So uh, right. closest to the government, dependence on the government, government largesse, these are, these are signs that you are that you are part of the ruling class. Uh, and then there are some other sort of signifiers, any, anything like um, granting granting access to the government in some way, right? So you're, you're granting access to entities that are sort of surviving on treasure that you are shifting from the government or from, from, from some tax-paying base to another. Um, right, right. And then there are uh, uh, some other things that are, are sort of um, hallmarks, like what he calls undermining the family. So keeping dependence, that's 
that's part of the ruling class's interest to keep dependence in some way. So things that sort of set that up or no-fault divorce, attacking homeschooling. This is another issue for the ruling class. Mm -hmm. So anything that undermines um, homeschooling because that creates independence. And they sort of legitimize themselves. The ruling class legitimizes itself, um, not as originalists. So if you are fed sock, you're probably declassé, right? But they legitimize themselves with this sort of living constitution interpretation that that starts off um, again with Wilson through Darrow in the 1920s. um, And then you can see a big example of this is uh, 1973 Roe versus Wade, uh, where they they decide to understand um, the search and seizure clause in the constitution as privacy and then decide that privacy means a a woman's right to privacy, the right to abortion, right? And then the the final thing that sort of they identify themselves with is uh, science. So they are the the science class and the deplorables are the class of ignorance or whatever, anti-science. So I just want to throw those things out there. Those are the identifiers of the ruling class or some identifiers of the ruling class. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you know, what he, uh, and again, I I mentioned it a little bit earlier, uh, a lot of this gets enabled by, you know, Theodore Adorno uh, when he wrote The Authoritarian Personality. And he mentions that he created a group of criteria to define what an authoritarian person was. And he basically would mark some of them on the what he called the F scale for fascist and essentially went down interviewing, you know, hundreds of Americans and said anybody that did not have the value of these liberal Democrats at that time, this is 1948. So right after World War II, sort of labeling them as fascist. So it goes back a long way. Uh, and I think it's it's just gone worse and worse. Yeah, they, they see the American sort of classes outside people outside of the ruling class they see them as so totally benighted that they cannot make this that they do not understand any issues enough to make decisions about it and so shouldn't really have any input and they also don't know what's best for themselves and you I brought it up last time. The uh, my my own priors in political philosophy is very much out of subsidiarity. So the concept that decisions should be made by the smallest possible form of government down to the self, and that is completely anathema now. It's um, everything has to be made at the federal level or at the state level at the, at a minimum, and we see it with a lot more uh, takeover of uh, school curriculum. That certainly is a big one, and in you know states like California. For instance, I know that they have changed. They, the parents are not even able to opt out of sex education, for instance, and it's uh, very intrusive in the family, in my opinion. And it's you, I don't even think you have to disagree with the uh, ideology that they promote in their sex ed classes to be concerned about limiting a parent's ability to take their kids out of that and make their own decisions about their children. And this is not just a U.S. thing. Uh, In some ways, you know, the U.S. actually has more uh, ways to put the brakes on this. But, you know, you've seen it, especially in Northern Europe, in like Scotland, they have almost like a state appointed guardian for every child. And so when a child is born, there is somebody in the government that is explicitly 
put in, you know, given the uh, interest and the right of guardian over that child, you know, rather than the parents. And this sort of uh, tendency, I mean, once you believe that a class of people do not have the competence to make decisions about their own life, much less you feel like they can be informed about the national thing, then that's a natural extension of it. You know, a lot of it goes back to predictions by Aldous Huxley. The the state would be more more able that you would have the state taking more interest in in the child than than the parents would. But, you know, it doesn't even have to be as extreme as Brave New World. You see it in Hillary Clinton in the 1990s saying, well, it takes a village to raise a child and that that parents cannot be trusted to be the the sole foundation. Now, I, I also don't believe that, but I believe that extended family and maybe certain aspects of the village, but that the parents are the primary caregivers that should be able to make decisions for children. Yeah. So the country class, who are they? We've talked about, we, we've kind of uh, hinted around about it, but if I, if I want to, I, I want to make it very explicit. They, who, who are the country class? They are heterogeneous for one. That is to say that you get, you know, the whole sort of IQ spectrum from, from idiot to savant. They're people sort of from all walks of life, but there are a few things that you can pick them out by. One is that they have no privileged podium from which to speak, right? So if you're part of the country class, you have no, um, you know, you have to go on, what is it, O-A-N-N or, you know, the Gateway Pundit or something like that. These places that, that sort of exist in relative ghettos. They have a reflexive reaction against the ideas of the rulers. So this is something that really, you know, marks them all. They they have a, a very, whatever the rulers say, you know, sort of like reflexively dislike it. And they're, they're distinguished by marriage, children, religion and maybe primarily lack of connection to the government. So these are small medium business owners, what we what we might call the lifeblood of the country if we're if I'm letting my allegiances be known. They're not anti-government. They're not crazed gun nuts in the woods, but they are non-governmental. They're they, they don't appreciate the government and they don't need government interference in their lives or want it. And I I guess uh, sort of to 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 move on to to what really makes them uh, another thing that makes them different is is that they don't seem to believe that they have the right to rule, and that's why they don't rule. the The ruling class rules because it has uh, a belief, and that's that's sort of what you must have in order to rule. The, there's a power disconnect between the ruling class and the country class because the country class believes that you know they, they shouldn't take any sort of act, action to correct imbalances in, in power or grievances between groups, things like that. They don't want any special treatment. They don't want it for themselves. They don't want it for corporations. They don't want it for social categories. And they're, they don't want to game uh, government regulations either. So, you know, like what's the, that famous, that, that, that famous uh, phrase that that comes out of a uh, mold bug, I think, is uh, manipulating procedural outcomes. They don't want to play that game. Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, I, yeah. So, so a couple of points there that whatever you call it, manipulating procedural outcomes or just not wanting to, re- you know, rely or even use government services beyond things like, say, going to a national park or whatever. But I think because of a consciousness that these are limited resources and coming from a, a high trust group, you sort of say, okay, these are limited. We know that if everybody goes to use them, then they'll be depleted very quickly. And so cheating on taxes, uh, 
even if it's very difficult uh, or, you know, even if it's easy to do or you won't be caught, it's just something that is not done. Taking government services like uh, using subsidized housing when you have the means not to, even if you could sneak away into it, it's just not done. So, you know, there's, there's, it's just, it's just not part of the culture and it's not part of the psychology. There are, uh, and this goes into questions on on immigration because there are people that come from very educated, you know, very smart people, but that come from different areas and don't have the same sort of hangups. And so they 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 will use these sort of services, whether it's you know, okay, I'm going to you know keep assets in the parents' name and then buy a subsidized apartment for my children or something like that. You know, where that's that's clearly not the intention of the policy. But I, I think that you know a, a real thing about the dialectic between the ruling class and the country class was even until recently, there was some sort of peaceful coexistence and you wouldn't have the hammer come down uh, so heavily. And so the country class is still very confused about what is going on. And you know, they, they assume that, you know, the system still won't go so far against them. But you have it in some, let's go through some anecdotes, like one that comes to mind for me is there's a large area of Maine that was acquired by a a certain businesswoman. And I think it was, she, yeah, what is it? She's the, the um, owner of Burt's Bees. And she, she bought all of this land, you know, massive. And this is, this is backwoods Maine, okay? Nobody was going to develop anything up there. I mean, it's just, it's just woods. It's going to stay woods. It's, you know, more remote than Alaska, basically, to the extent that people still live there. They speak French. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's like that. So she, she bought all this land and then gifted it to the federal government. Now, what's one of the outcomes of that? Well, you, you're not really allowed to hunt on federal land. And so a, this was sort of a theft of a, you know, large hunting ground for people. And I'd say like, if you can define like one activity that is exclusively country class, and the ruling class has has at probably 100% antagonistic to it, it's hunting, right? I mean, like, yeah. they just, they don't do it, they don't have any interest in it, it, you, you need to own guns to do it, you know, it's typically, and so it's just, but it, you know, you have just anecdotes like that, where it's just clearly like a member, a very wealthy person using uh, the government to accomplish whatever she thinks that she's doing of preserving land, but with an implication that is very negative on members of this country class. There's another thing, another, I think, homework that, and and um, it's also sort of part of this uneasy truce, let's call it, between the, the ruling class and the country class, which is that if you, if the country class can sit, continues sending its sons off to foreign wars, they can wave their little rebel flags or whatever it is, you know, and have their July 4th celebrations and that sort of thing. I think it, it sort of feels mm-hmm. like that's breaking down, but it is, it is certainly the case that the military, or sorry, a, a, a the percentage of a country class who goes into the military is, is, is much, much higher than, than the ruling class. Of course, the ruling class, you know, is going to be officers anyway, but the enlisted military is comes from either overseas or from the American country class. And, you know, George is, George is a, a good example of, 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 of this sort of divide because there was this, you know, there's this preacher who was in the news recently for saying that you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, what is it, love God and, and or, you know, serve God in the military 
mm. and then ended up angering a, a, a swath of Georgians because the uh, clearly there's quite a lot of quite a lot of country boys go into the military, but also it's a the mm-hmm. state is heavily subsidized, I suppose, by the by military bases everywhere. Fort Benning and everything, right, yeah, right, sure. Right. Well, anyway, they, you know, this is this is one sort of mark of the the country classes that they are heavily represented in in the enlisted part of the military. Something else, yeah, they are sort of separationist, I suppose, in the sense that so one really good example is that they, you know, this this is where this uh, sort of homeschool mo- movement comes from. Obviously, obviously, there are upper class members of the ruling class who don't send their kids to public schools but the reasoning is different not because they not because they dislike the ideology because the ideology is their ideology but that is the reason that the country class largely pulls their kid out of course the ruling ruling class is sending them to private schools the country class is homeschooling and i i think the yeah or, or religious schools or religious but, yeah. schools right there's um catholicism and then uh like four percent are private school just other kinds of private schools but i think three three percent of of parents um homeschool uh and that was you know using using his statistics from what 10 years ago but uh, that was up from right. like 0.7 in the in the 90s or something like that. So over the over the past 40 years, homeschooling has exploded and well, relatively. And one reason, uh, the the main reason is 85% of parents say that they don't like public school environment, which means the dominant culture or you know the country or the right. the uh, ruling class enforced culture, I suppose you could say. Yeah, I mean it's uh, I I you know growing up there were kids that would come into the public school system that had been homeschooled for you know several years and everything, so you know had a little bit of interaction with that, but not a whole lot. I mean it's it's an interesting feature. I mean, in most of Europe, I think it's it's completely illegal, right? Yeah. Um, and China, you know, as well. there there have been cases of. Well, yeah. I mean, it's. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you could like hide the kid or something like that, but yeah, they'll they'll find you out very very easily, you know. So it, it's one of those things that has kind of snuck under the radar for a number, you know, probably because of frontier reasons and um, inability to get educational resources to certain places. But but even that I know has been under attack in certain parts of the country that are even more where where control by the ruling class is. Is, is much more effective, right? You know, I mean, like, uh, if you think about like America as an empire, even domestically, there, there, are, there are parts of it that are much less under their grasp. So in Wyoming, I think you probably have carte blanche to do homeschooling as as you wish. And I think in like, uh, places like New York and California, you have to be getting your curriculum approved by the local superintendent, it's, it's a lot more intrusive, you know, and I expect that there this sort of, um, you know, loophole, if you will, might might come under attack once it, it gets more attention, and certainly if it were more popular. But even, you know, escaping that kind of policy side of control, I mean, if you look at kind of contemporary economics, you know, homeschooling requires even more of a full-time job by at least one parent, right? And so, you know, you need to have a parent that's not working, and that is increasingly difficult in 
you know, our economy and everything is more expensive, you know, home ownership from it, you know, home ownership is one of those key enablers of a country class because people at least have an asset and it's increasingly out of the reach of younger people. Uh, and so that kneecaps a, a big, big part of it. But, you know, you need that. And then also, I mean, those, you know, when I lived in Georgia, for instance, I did know a number of homeschoolers and a, a big feature there is, you know, it's, it's a community thing, you know, and kids are actually getting probably better socialized than in public schools. But what you typically are doing is kind of spreading out, you know, the workload among different like friends and stuff in your community. And so, you know, one parent will be teaching math or reading or science or something, you know, because it's an area that they, they know better. You're getting together for um, for sports and things to get the gym class replaced. And, you know, you, you just you need to have those kinds of connections. And I think that's another thing that is really under attack now, you know, and it kind of goes to that Robert Putnam bowling alone type thing, you know, where you just kind of like don't have civil society, you don't through like, you know, the church or whatever, people just kind of like, you know, you don't even have friends, you don't even have that sort of a community where you could build this kind of uh, homeschool environment. Well, you know, um, I just saw, I, I think that uh, Razib Khan on Twitter is like rage quitting this week or something like that and going mm-hmm. going over to Substack. But I noticed that before he before he decided that he he wrote a, a thread about um, seeing his kids doing Zoom class, um, you know, because of mm-hmm. COVID, and uh, just <laughs> he he's actually a pretty I, I would say that he he um, doesn't go too extreme, despite what people you know he got he got tossed out of the New York Times, unfortunately, and and I think that was for some stuff he said when he was nineteen, but uh, he's not an extreme guy. It, it made me sort of chuckle because um, he got really enraged when when uh, he saw what his his kids were learning in public school. Which uh, someone said, "What are they? What are they teaching?" And uh, he said, "Nothing. It's critical race theory." Mm-hmm. And the the difference between public school and homeschool is that homeschool kids are learning math and uh, Latin. They're not learning right. critical race theory and um, you know having having to navigate uh, mo- uh, weird multi-ethnic um melange that you brought up robert putnam and um you know these these kids end up going to public schools and putnam is the one who wrote he wrote the that that paper uh about about uh, social trust he he thought that he was going to be writing a, a paper about you know diversity is our strength right he, he thought he was going to find that out mm-hmm. and then ended up writing a paper that i believe he didn't publish for a number of years because he found out the opposite that that uh, right. that these highly diverse societies are lower trust, but just in the sense of of sending your kid to a public school with um, these where these sort of these these things are played out in a microcosm, whereas what you you know you could be doing your other choice would be you know your your small culture culture in miniature right where they don't have to sort of navigate these weird landmines of strange and sometimes my. I, I, I'm I'm bringing this up because I went to public school and I went to one that is right, sure, uh, not very. It's it's a it's a Georgia public school, but the there were um, racial tensions that were. I mean, it was rife with racial tension, and I remember a, a good deal of of violence as a result of that. Not between um, the races necessarily, but the right. I, I remember quite a, a lot of violence in school that. You know, I didn't that as a parent, I, I don't want to, you know, send my kids to a school like that, which, you know, my, right, my parents, right. my, my parents were, were 
not moneyed people, so they did the best they could. But uh, you know, if you can get your kids out of that situation, you would. All right. A couple- yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go I ahead. Mean, but but this, yeah. Well, and this is back back when she was doing work that, in my opinion, was a lot more meaningful. But Elizabeth Warren, as an academic, did did studies on what leads to family bankruptcies, and the the primary culprit is buying homes in good school districts that are on ultimately unaffordable. But, you know, parents, um, whether in the, you know, I I believe that ruling class um, people also obviously like care about their kids. And one of the ways that it works out is trying, you know, aspiring to private schooling, for instance, or, you know, spending a lot of energy on keeping their public schools you know, set up in a certain way that is is kind of hypocritical, right? It's not, you know, yeah. in, in the prescribed way that they would in in other school districts. But, you know, that that's that's just something that that they do. But I, I think actually like one of the characteristics of the ruling class that is much more pronounced is just fear of downward mobility, right? You know, that you are so much more concerned about, you know, this idea that you could kind of lose everything. And, it, you know, one of the ways that it works out is obviously in this cancel culture. I mean, you you mentioned Razib Khan, and, and he's one, but, you know, you see it in other areas. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. And historically, they just weren't recorded or as easy to take completely out of context. And some can destroy their career completely by, you know, just kind of saying the wrong thing or holding the wrong opinion or something. I mean, I, I think there was like a really absurd example out of the UK in the last week where a poet and you're more into poetry than I am, I think. So I was not familiar with the guy and I can't remember the name, but he was like put on some list uh, by the British Library or some organization uh, that's compiling a list of people that have benefited from slavery or something. And it was like because an ancestor in the you know 1600s or something owned a slave. I mean, it was just like so completely outrageous that I think it even registered on many people's minds. But a, a lot of this is um, uh, increasingly absurd. And it's something that the ruling class is as subject to. And it's, it's because there are elements within the ruling class that are, you know, trying to keep maybe, you know, I mean, there's, there's an inner party, outer party dynamic within that ruling class as well, right? You know, and they're extremely fearful of getting getting kicked out of it, I think, especially because they don't have some of the, um, you know, social cohesion that can be seen within the country. I mean, they feel like they would really be alone. You know, I, I think that the other aspect of the, the contemporary ruling class that we should talk about is um, an addition to it over the last decade, you know, at last 20 years, but I think especially after the, over the last 10 has been uh, Silicon Valley and, you know, the kind of that technology oligarchy of, you know, uh, Google, Facebook, especially it's in uh, social media. And in some ways, it's probably replaced Hollywood, which is something that, you know, Kodavia, because of his um, generation, was more focused on as a big partner in it. I think that um, that's sort of been replaced by Silicon Valley and this so-called technology. When I say technology, what I really mean is like Intel and semiconductors and things. I mean, like, to me, that's technology. These are like taxi companies that you use your phone to use. But I mean, like, they are, you know, because it's called tech, I'll use that. 
but you know they, they've they've really replaced a lot of it and i think the implications of it are you know they can prevent access you know you have the shadow banning or deplatforming or whatever you want to call it you know i think that if you look at how twitter is dealing with uh covid and then obviously the election i mean like the things that get flagged as dangerous or whatever, even disputed are things that are certainly coming from the country class, whether it's like certain remedies or whatever, or issues with masks, it gets censored, you know, the stuff that Trump says about the election, you know, and the way that they say it is, well, uh, first official sources dispute this. And so they mean, okay, because the media said that Trump lost, or there's no fraud or whatever. Now they backed over and said multiple sources. But if you think about it, like this, this doesn't make sense, everything is disputed. So you know, when, when are you gonna, you know, where, where do you draw that line? And they've basically drawn the line right around him. So he's the only one who will get flagged or things that are kind of about him or on his side will. And the same with, uh, with COVID and things that are there. I mean, it's, it's definitely a hammer. Um, and then on Facebook, which I'm not on, it's, um, more difficult to share some of these stories. Like when the Hunter Biden laptop came out, they were preventing people from sending those out. And, you know, where it can work out also then is in other parts of technology, like on payment platforms and everything. So if you are Razib Khan and you go to Substack, well, Substack can kick you out and then that's your livelihood, you know, or, you know, at an extreme example, uh, let's say you're trying to self-host your website, whatever WordPress or somebody could kick you out, you know, Visa can say that, you know, they're trying to do this with uh, with gun gun stores, right? Say like, oh, the credit card companies won't be able to uh, process transactions there. So these sort of like uh, high tech areas certainly have um, entered into the discussion a lot more. Yeah, it's it's a very, it's a big blind spot as well. It's sort of like cutting off a part of your social cognition because um, they, they aren't getting uh, information from a certain sector of well, and and to and to the to the ruling class, it, it it doesn't matter, right? Because the the country class is is um, anti science, you know, racist bigots, and so nothing nothing good comes from that. Well, but uh, you know, just as an example, um, and this this will be a controversial example, but we didn't like you and I and our friends, we we didn't hear about um, hydroxychloroquine from doctors, right? We heard about it from right frog you know frogs on twitter and and you know like uh weird rooms on urbit and that sort of thing and um you know whatever whether it works or it doesn't work it was back in you know february march it, it was known about in certain in certain circles before it was known about by the supposed experts and it kind of bubbled up into the you know i i know some wrong think doctors who who had it uh, as part of like their uh, hospital's uh, protocol, so they were they were using it as part of their protocol, and then Trump talks about it, and suddenly it's verboten. And then, and, and I don't know whether it works or works or not. It seems that there's been some some uh, evidence again and and against, and now uh, I've just seen that there's another a new paper out that says that you know in 85 percent of cases it's effective or something like that. But the point is, it, it wasn't based on merit. You know that this. Right. Uh, the the condemnation wasn't based on any merit. And at the time we were fighting a war and, and what you would want is to have every, you know, every idea sort of come to the fore, the marketplace of ideas or whatever. What has happened uh, instead is, you know, Orange Man said hydroxychloroquine. So we can't even 
consider that it might be useful. And right. so, so this is this is sort of an example of a of a, a an, an intellectual weakness. Um, there are some other ones. Uh, do we we have? Um, I, I don't think we've really sort of talked about the failures. And there are a few other. Um, ruling class failures that we, we could talk about. One that you talked about was was monetary policy, which was a big one for him. You know who you're who you're, right. who you're giving um, government treasure to and that sort of thing. Who you're bailing out. Another one though is the inability to win a war. Uh, I don't think I don't right. think that the the ruling. I mean I don't think we can say that the ruling class has sort of de- decisively won a war in 60, 70 years. Right. So this is this is another mark. Yeah. I mean I think that you know you can kind of have an entire discussion on whether or not their goal is to quote unquote win a war, you know, and I think, you know, in some ways, uh, having kind of protracted engagement in place, I mean, most absurd example, obviously, Afghanistan, that it kind of like fits in with exactly what they want to do. But you know, uh, certainly running, you know, foreign policy and defense policy and everything by their ruling is it's just it's not going to win an actual conflict. And if, if there are if there is like a pretense of being able to win a military engagement with China, for instance, with like a um, decision making by a professor professional managerial class. I mean, like that, that's just not going to, to happen. I mean, you know, a a lot of the um, defense policy, and this could be like a really long discussion, I mean, like in procurement and everything absolutely makes no sense. And it goes back to what you were talking about is kind of like that reliance on the government. Um, And so Boeing, after acquiring McDonnell Douglas and becoming really like a lobbying machine, or Lockheed Martin, you know, a lot of their purpose is to design uh, inefficient, very expensive weapon systems, for instance, because they get these massive contracts to do it. And, you know, getting these, you know, long term, decades long procurement things, you get to sell then to American client states, you know, so yeah, certainly, I mean, like, you know, but it, I think that, you know, the other thing is engagement in wars and foreign conflicts that if the country class values came up, then, you know, you absolutely just like would not do so. Uh, And so like, I think that, you know, the country class is very much capable of making a decision on whether or not a war is something that they actually want to get into. And if you actually explain the issues in a non jingoistic way, for instance, I think that they would be convinced that, well, Saddam Hussein is actually a load bearing dictator, that for the Christian population of Iraq, for instance, is a much better ruler than what would come after him. And I would say the same thing for Bashar al-Assad, even even more extreme example. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at kind of like, you know, what we were doing in Yugoslavia, you know, that was totally contrary to what the country class, I think, would would have wanted us to be doing. Yeah. I mean, Haiti is another good example. That's that's a, a place that could that mm-hmm. could benefit from just an authoritarian ruler to straighten it out and and you know instead what they've got is some mishmash of of ngos who are never apparently going to allow them to pull themselves up out of the muck um the the last thing i want to talk about real quick is the sort of his agenda i suppose his revolutionary agenda and he actually ends the book on sort of surprisingly i guess he you 
I think it's like 128 pages or something like that. And then the you turn the last page of the book, and what he what he's done is printed the Declaration of Independence in there, which I, th- mm-hmm. I thought was cheeky and amusing. But uh, he talks about the sort of revolutionary agenda for the country class taking back the country, I suppose you could say. And um, one thing that he said, well, he says that there's a revolt coming, and this was this was 10 years ago. He said there was going to be something like what mm-hmm. like what Trump was in 2016, and he said that uh, the country class doesn't really have the option of an of what we would call an exit, which is something that like Urbit gives you, you know, that that uh, opportunity. If you don't like your ruler, you can go find another one, right? You don't you don't have like what was afforded to Roger Williams, you know, in the nonconformists in Massachusetts. You have to you know go fo- you right. can't go find found Rhode Island anymore. It's just not possible. You can't run off uh, to Utah if you're Mormons, right? So that's not really that's not really a possibility. What he suggests then is uh, anti-tax groups, anti-abortion groups, the pro-family groups, the religious groups, you know, the FedSoc types. These are the ones who are who can fight back. And uh, what his his prescription is is not to form an alternative ruling class, which is probably where. I don't know. We, we could have a whole discussion about whether that's a sane prescription or not. Uh, I don't think. I, I think that. Mm-hmm. I think that a, a true Machiavellian would say that there's no. There's no. You know, when you have a group of people, you will always have a ruling class. But he he doesn't want to saddle. Right. He doesn't want to saddle people with another ruling class like they have. I don't. I don't know if that's practical or not. But his other prescriptions are um, mo- mobilizing yourself on a on a principal moral basis. Actually, that's pretty good advice. Uh, in my opinion, because as I said at the beginning of the podcast, the problem with uh, with the country class is that they don't believe that they have the right to rule, and this is a this is a problem for you know taking taking charge. So they they need to sort of come to the understanding that maybe have a a uh, you know come to Jesus moment or a, or a, a revelation that they're not you know because. Now, one the worst thing in the world to be called is a racist. If a member of the ruling class wants to wants to ruin you, they they brand you as a racist and you lose everything. So you have to sort of. I think one thing that he's saying is that you have to have this moral understanding of of your own decency, uh, and then you also have to understand that the network of privileges that they have set up is is unfair and dishonest. And then mm-hmm. I think uh, and and the final thing that he said was that you have to sort of make yourself ready to to do what your grandparents did. There's a point that he made, which is that in the um, 1940s, there were like 117,000 individual school districts in America, uh, school boards rather. And, mm. and people, local people, you know, in, in every small town in America served on the school board. Now there are 15,000 school districts run by whomever they're run by. And so he says that right. what you have to do is you have to take back power from the bottom, basically, you know, restore lo- local traditional power over schools, standards, curriculum. And he says prayer. So that means, you know, you sort of have to repudiate at least a couple of generations of, of Supreme Court rulings on the matter. And then you have to mm-hmm. and then you have to mm-hmm. be, you know, disciplined like the, the Democrats are disciplined. They, they, they just deny legitimacy to the country class so that's what the country class has to do as well you know de- deny that the dem- democrats are uh legitimate which or the ruling class i say the democrats but the ruling class deny that they're legitimate which it, it's so prescient because it seems like that they they finally some some people have come to this conclusion which is why we're having this month long so far election that we're having which is that people have finally decided that 
the ruling class isn't legitimate. At least this election is not legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'd like to stress, you know, um, and I, I think, I mean, you're correct that, you know, there's a strong association of uh, the Democrat Party, the institutional Democrat Party with um, the ruling class. But, you know, even on that side, if you look at the strength Bernie Sanders and how well he did, you know, and, and whether or not he is uh, actually actually believes in the sort of things that he was talking about, there were, there was a lot of support from him, and I think that that also comes from a country class kind of mindset for from some at least from some of his supporters that uh, there's a, there's a dissatisfaction there. And, they, you know, there's a group that will never, for a variety of reasons, you know, support the uh, Republican Party. And it, I, I think one of the proofs of that, that it was at least partly a country class movement was what happened in Iowa, South Carolina, and Michigan in particular, to stop him this time from winning races like he did against Hillary Clinton in 2016. You know, the stuff in Iowa was kind of outrageous, not kind of completely outrageous. And then, and, you know, I think that uh, Michigan, even uh, potentially, there were some of the uh, fraud dynamics that were. I mean, I, I think that you know, there's some plausible things there, but that the entire sort of Democrat primary process was, you know, it seems in retrospect sort of designed to keep him away from uh, winning the nomination. And, you know, that that certainly seems to come from a, a ruling class impulse that he was uh, representing a, a strain in that Democrat party. That uh, Part of the reason that I'm saying this is because I don't want to alienate anybody who, you know, does not identify with the Republican Party from kind of understanding, you know, what what's what's going on here, you know, and I, I think, you know, especially again, like, I kind of want to tie it back to to Urbit, because I think that it, you know, accommodates a lot of different political viewpoints. You know, I, I know, in like the cryptocurrency forum, there have been a few people that claim that they're socialists, you know, it's so uh, you know, I think that an important thing about Urbit is it provides a way for anybody to be in, involved in and create their own communities and everything and ultimately to enable kind of connectivity within different groups without the risk of deplatforming or removal from the ability to use it. So yeah, that, that's that, that's the point that I wanted to make. I think the way the way to close is perhaps with not offering a prescription like Codavia does, because I certainly don't have any idea or even necessarily have a lot of positivity about whether or not you can completely, without massive upheaval, you know, uh, dislodge the ruling class. But I, I think that, you know, what I try to do is take responsibility within my own family to obviously like uh, think about the values and behaviors and things like that. Save money, uh, invest wisely, you know, set your life up in a way that the ruling class has as little authority over you and what you can do as possible and support others that have that same sort of value um, to the extent possible. You know, and I think that is... Uh, really kind of the the medicine that people can take at this point if you have the option to you know think about quasi exits you know whether it's like living in asia or something like that for a little while until this blows over i don't know you know i know that some people think that that's the the best option but i think that you know people just have to take responsibility for their own actions and then you know ultimately perhaps there's an opportunity to regroup and be more engaged on the political level but i think that's the primary responsibility is on the individual
Thank you for listening. Please visit us at www.thestack.link or find us on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word. And please remember to like and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Josh, and with Andy, we are The Stack. <laughs>